welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. Amen. If you've got your Bibles with you, and I hope you do, we're going to be in Acts chapter 1 this morning. Acts chapter 1. Now, while you guys are turning there, I've got a question for you, and you're going to have to answer verbally, so think through this really well. So question number one, what is the scariest thing that you can think of? What? Neighbors? Oh, snakes. Uh, Can confirm, biblically, snakes are the scariest thing in the world. That's in the Bible. Okay, snakes, what else? An angry wife, says the man who's about to have a wedding shower. Okay, good job. So we need to pray for him. He's not going to live past the rest of the day, but that's okay. All right, what else? Need two more. Tigers? Crazy. Ticks. You guys are scared of everything. The correct answer was Bigfoot, in case you were wondering. Bigfoot is real. So, scariest things. Like, for most of us, we think of things that could attack us. Ticks, tigers, uh, snakes, and angry wives could attack us, I guess. And although I don't have that problem. But, but we, we think of things that could attack us, that could harm us. But I think if we really got truthful with that question, if we really ask ourselves, what scares me the most? What is the thing I worry about the most in the future? I think a lot of our answers would be something like, what if somebody I love dies? Uh, it might be a question of what if, what if I lose my job in this economy? What if, what if my spouse finds somebody younger or prettier or richer than me or somebody who doesn't yell out my wife attacks me in the middle of church? What, what if that happens? What if, what if that is what happens to me? What, what if my family moves away from me? In truth, I think what a lot of times we think of is what if I lose something? What if something in my life changes? And I'll be honest with you. I think change is the scariest thing that we deal with as humans because we are built for continuity. I don't think we were built for the change that we see in the world. Change scares us. Now, change can be a good thing, but it can be scary. So, for example, what if I got up here this morning and I announced, hey, next week when you guys come to church... It's the all-new Ramsey Heights. We're going to remodel the sanctuary this week while you guys are gone. We're getting rid of the pews. There's going to be all kinds of new things in here. Um, We're going to sing four new songs next week. You won't know any of them. There will be a new pastor. Don't don't applaud. Don't applaud. There will be a new pastor. It will be different next week than it is this week. Now, some of you would be like, all right, where's this going? But for the vast majority of us, we're going to spend our week in anxiety. It's like, what does he mean, different? Who's the new pastor going to be? What songs are we going to sing? It's going to be horrible. And I can guarantee you that there would be many people, just because we mentioned change, that would go, I'm not going. I don't know what they're doing, but nothing needed to be changed. But at the same time, change can be a good thing. Think Think about life. I mean, life is full of changes, right, as we go through our lifestyles. And these changes can be scary, but they can also be good for us. For example, it's graduation season. Isn't that right, Seth? Getting close to graduation. And graduation is scary, is it not? Like when you think about that time when you were in high school and now it's going to be out of high school and then you go off to college or you go off to your job or whatever, like there's new things and that can scare us. I remember when I went to college, I saw Arkansas Tech University, me and my best friend, Our families came up there. They dropped us off in our dorm rooms. They left us there. And when everybody left and moms were crying and they said bye and they closed the door, me and my friend were just standing there and were like, now what? 
I can tell you what we couldn't do is stay in our dorm room because our moms had fogged it with Lysol until it was unbearable. I had to live outside of my dorm room for the first like week that I was at college. But like that, that's scary because it's new. The same thing when you get married, it's wonderful, but it's new. When you have kids, it's wonderful, but it's new. When, you, when your kids move off and you're an empty nester, it's, I don't know, wonderful, but it's new. And for those reasons, we find those things scary. But with change usually comes both, both sides of the coin. With change usually comes hardship, but out of that hardship is usually born blessing. And as we continue in our story where we've been looking at the story of Jesus and we've been looking at the dilemma, what I want to focus on today is, is how things changed after the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how those hardships eventually turned into blessings. Now, if you haven't been with us the past few weeks, we've been in a series called The Dilemma. And what we're doing is we're tracking down a problem that all humans have. We're tracking down a problem of our sin. In Genesis chapter 3, it tells us a story of the first sin that entered the world. We are sinners, and therefore we deserve what? Death. Okay, just three people have been listening for the past five weeks. Okay, We deserve death. Like, like death is what we get because of our sin. Uh, death simply means separation, separation from our bodies, separation from our family when we die. But most importantly, it means separation from God. We as humans, we walk this earth completely separated from God because of our sin, because we have chose to rebel against him. And, and that's the dilemma that we live in until Jesus walks into the picture. And Jesus comes into the picture and he says, oh, that death, that looks too heavy for you. I don't want you to have to experience separation from God. I don't want death to be permanent for you. Let me take that death from you. And Jesus goes to the cross with my debt and with your debt to take our death. But that death could not defeat him because three days later he was resurrected. So what's next in the story? What's next is exactly what we've been talking about. It's a big change. What's next in the story is a change that is necessary and a change that brings blessing, but a change nonetheless. So if you've got your Bibles with you, let's look in the book of Acts. If you're not familiar with the book of Acts, this is written by a guy named Luke. Now, Luke was not a Christian when Jesus was here. He became a Christian afterwards. Luke was a doctor, and he felt like he felt led by the Spirit to write a detailed account of the life of Jesus Christ. You'll find that in the book or the gospel of Luke. Jesus, he writes from Jesus' birth to Jesus' resurrection. But Luke did not feel like he was done. He felt like somebody needed to record the story of what happened after Jesus leaves us in this earth. And that's what the book of Acts. It is the Acts of the Apostles, the next chapter of the story. So if you've got your Bibles, this is Acts chapter 1. Let's read verses 1 through 3. The former treaty I have made, O Theopolis, so he's saying I have already wrote to you about this, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. He recorded that in the book of Luke. Until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So Luke starts off the book of Acts with a quick review of the events of what's been going on here. And so when he writes this, the way he writes it is not the way you and I would usually organize things. Instead of saying step A, step B, step C, Luke starts with step C. Okay, so step C happened, but it didn't happen until after step B. And then before step B was step A. So let's read this again. We're going to read this in reverse because he kind of reversed the order of things. We're going to read this in reverse to see if we can get the chronology correct here. So read with me verse 3 again. To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion 
by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days. Everybody say 40 days. And speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. The second half of verse 2. After that, he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. First half of verse 2. Until the day in which he was taken up. So Luke gives us a, a bunch of events here that happen after the resurrection of Jesus. Step one is Jesus is going to walk this earth for 40 days. Step two is he's going to give some commands to his apostles. And step three, he ascends into heaven, which is the change that we are going to be focusing on today. So if you've got your bulletin with you, in your bulletin there is an outline that helps you keep track of what we're learning. The first point on that is after the resurrection, Jesus walked the earth for 40 days. Now, there seems to be some significance to that, that there were 40 days in between Jesus' resurrection and the time he leaves here. Like, we have to ask, why? God does everything purposeful. So if there was 40 days, there was a reason there was 40 days. If there was 12 days, there's a reason there were 12 days. Me and you, we could look at this and we go, well, why wouldn't Jesus stay longer? Jesus is alive. Walk into that courtroom where they sentenced you to death. Sit on the chair and say, I'm the judge now. You can't kill me, obviously, but Jesus didn't choose to do that. He chose to stay 40 days. Jesus could have left earlier than that. Jesus could have walked out of that grave on day one, shown himself to a bunch of people and been like, I'm out. But Jesus didn't stay one day. Jesus stayed 40 days. So what's the significance of him staying that long? Why would he do that? <clears throat> Why would he do that? Well, in the Bible, numbers will often communicate something to us when they're repeated multiple times. It's like a, it's like a construction site. You know when you're driving along and they're working on the road up ahead of you, you, you come up on a sign and it says something like, flagger ahead. What color is that sign? I was going to say, if y'all can't answer that, y'all ain't allowed to drive anymore. Like, that's, it's orange, right? It's orange because it pops out and, and it grabs your attention. And then you get down there where they stop you and the person holding the stop sign is wearing what color? Orange. And, and then you drive through there and all the tractors are yellow. Uh-huh. Trick. Trick, right? So when you go to a construction site, the whole point of it is they put something out there that grabs your attention and says, look, you don't want to miss this. And if we don't make it clear for you, you might miss that there's a person there or that there's a tractor parked in the middle of the road or something like that. Well, within the Bible, a lot of numbers do the exact same thing. There's numbers that when you study the Bible, they pop out and they grab your attention and they say, hang on, study this for a minute because there's something here that you shouldn't miss. So just for example, the number three always represents holiness because that's the number of persons within the Trinity. The, the number seven represents perfection or completion because that's how long it took God to create uh, God to create the earth. And so when you see seven, you know it is a picture of completion or even a derivative of seven. Seven times ten, seventy. Seven times seven, forty-nine. Six is one number short of seven. So when you see six in the Bible, six always means incomplete or imperfect. That's why the number 666 is representative of Satan, because he cannot be perfect and complete as God is. The number 12 means authority. We see that with the 12 tribes of Israel and even the fact that Jesus chose 12 apostles. And then we see the number 40. And 40 may be the most prevalent number in all of the Bible. 40 pops up in tons of stories. And every time you see 40, 40 almost always represents a time in days or years. And it represents a, a time of hardship, trial, and tribulation. 
Within the story of Noah, Noah gets into the ark. God closes the door and it rains for how long? 40 days and 40 nights. If you keep looking at this, Moses in the book of Exodus, Moses spends 40 days up on the mountain talking to God while the Israelites have a lack of leadership. They are so panicked they decide to make their own God randomly. The Israelites then wandered in the wilderness, wandered in the desert for how many years? 40 years they wandered without knowing where they were going or what they were doing. In the book of 1 Samuel, there is Israel going to war and they get ready to go to war against the Philistines and there's this giant named Goliath and he, and he walks out every day as they're preparing for war and he mocks them and he mocks God and he scares them and they run back to their camp for, guess what, for 40 days, a time of trial, a time of uh, tribulation. And then when Jesus comes on the stage, early in the story of what we know of Jesus, Jesus goes out into the wilderness himself and he fasts and there he is tempted by Satan for 40 days. So we see this number 40 is always accompanied by or is always a time period of trial or tribulation within the Bible. If you've got your outline, that is point A. 40 represents a time of trial or hardship. And so this 40 days that Jesus is walking the earth in between his, his resurrection and between the time he goes to heaven and ascends into heaven represents a time of trial or hardship. And that makes sense, even though Jesus is alive, and that's a great thing. You've got to think, if you were a follower of God, there's a lot of uncertainty in this time period. Like, Jesus is alive, but he just kind of appears and disappears as he wills. He's not just always sitting right beside you. He just kind of shows up, and he usually shocks people. This is a time when you hear the disciples, most of the time when the disciples are mentioned during this 40 days, they are hiding because they just watched their leader be grabbed up in the middle of the night and executed the harshest way that anybody could possibly be killed. This is a time of a lot of questions like, okay, Jesus died and I know he's here again, I've seen him, but, but now what? Like it's not the same as it was. It's a time of a lot of change and uncertainty. So in this, 40 days lives up to its name. But here's what's interesting about those times of trials and tribulations. And anytime you see 40, there's a time of hardship. But that time of hardship is always a time of preparation. Hardship is good for us in certain circumstances. I know I'm a sports person. Some of you are as well. But, but athletes do not become professional level athletes by sitting on the couch and watching TV, which is exactly why I'm preaching, not playing in the NFL. But athletes go through lots of hardship, lots of trial, lots of, uh, lots of problems in order to practice to get their bodies in peak physical shape so that they can be ready for the big game. It's the same thing with school and with a test. When I was in college, the, the, every once in a while, the professor would be like, okay, you're going to have a test. Oh, that doesn't sound bad. It's worth half of your grade. I'm like, it's finals time, isn't it, Liv? So, uh, Liv knows what it's like. And, and so finals come around and they're like, hey, if you don't pass this test, you're probably just going to you know, fail at life. And so there's this time of trial and hardship and temptation in that, that you're dealing with like all of this stress. But here's what I learned about tests in college. For those of you about to go to college and in college, here's what you need to know. Like that stress causes you to prepare for the event. When I was in college, I'd lock myself in a room and I'd have a notebook with all my notes. And I would go over those notes until I could tell you page by page. I could open it and tell you everything on the page to prepare myself for that test. 
And when God puts Christians, when God puts his people through a time of trial and hardship, it's a time of preparation for something that he wants to do next. So point B is 40 represents a time of preparation. Those stories I mentioned earlier, if you look at Noah, 40 days on the ark. I'm sorry, take that back. 40 days and 40 nights of rain while Noah is on the ark. That's a time of preparation for what God wants to do next. God wants to reestablish the earth to remultiply or to replenish it. And after that, God gives this huge promise to the world in the form of a rainbow that I will not destroy the world by flood again. With Moses, he's on the mountain for 40 days and the Israelites deal with a lack of leadership and they go off and they chase false gods because of that. But after that 40 days of trial and hardship, Moses comes down and he comes down with the Ten Commandments, which is the base of the contract between the Israelites and God. After that, if you look at the story of them wandering in the wilderness, for 40 years they wandered, having no clue where they were going, having no way to provide for themselves. But in that 40 years, God provided for their every need. God brought water out of rocks. God brought manna out of heaven. Literally, they would wake up and there would just be food on the ground. And for 40 years, the Israelites learned to rely on God's provision. After that 40 years, they were taken to a place called the Promised Land, a place that was said to be flowing with milk and honey in which they had to capture, but they had been prepared to rely on God. For 40 days, Goliath taunted Israel and they were embarrassed and they were scared. And suddenly David walks up and he goes out and he shows the power of God. Just David, a slingshot and God, and he kills the giant that scared entire armies. And incidentally, in that moment, that is when God introduces the next king of Israel to Israel. If you go to Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, 40 days in the wilderness, as soon as he comes back from that, this is when his ministry starts. He begins picking disciples and preaching. Every time God takes somebody through a time of trial, when we see 40 in the Bible, it uh, communicates a time of preparation because something big is coming next. It's hard now but we're getting ready for something else. That's point C on your outline, is 40 precedes God doing something big. And so when we're looking at this, it's like, well, Brian, it's kind of already big. Like Jesus was dead and now he's not. Like that's, that's a big thing. And I agree, that is a big thing, but that's not the end of the plan for God. That's not the end of what he's planning to do. And so God during this time is preparing for them for the next step and for the next big thing that he is going to do. And during this time, God prepares the disciples with confidence. Brings us to point number two, is during, um, after the resurrection of Jesus, Point two, Jesus appears to his disciples. In the Bible, Jesus appears at least 10 times. He probably appeared more than that, but there are 10 recorded times where Jesus is with his, uh, with his people and they see him. And the point of all of these is for an eyewitness account. Jesus shows up and he's like, hey, it's me and I can prove it. Here's the scars. Jesus shows up and he says things like, don't be afraid. He says, peace to you. He's preparing them with the confidence of, of his resurrection and of his life. And so we see these different instances where on Sunday morning, a group of women go and they go to the tomb and they're trying to prepare his body. And they get there and the body's gone. And, and Mary Magdalene, is, she's upset and she's crying. And she runs to the gardener and said, would you tell me what you have done with the, uh, with the body of Jesus? And the gardener says, Mary and Mary looks up and she sees Jesus alive and walking in that moment 
Later that day, two men are walking around. They've heard the story. They've heard the rumors. Hey, the body of Jesus is not in the grave anymore. People are saying that he's alive. One lady said that she saw him, like he's given instructions. What's going on? And they're talking about this and a stranger walks up to them. Said, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, tell him, like, hey, we're followers of Jesus. And they killed him like four days ago. And now he's alive again. And, and we don't know what's going on. And they're talking about this. And they walk with this stranger. And they invite the stranger to eat with him. Come eat with us. And the stranger prays and breaks bread. And suddenly they look at him and they go, the stranger is Jesus. And then Jesus vanishes. Possibly at the same time, some of the disciples are gathered. And they're praying. And they don't know what to do. And they're in a room together. And all of a sudden, Jesus just appears in the midst of them, showing that he has the power over life and death. And there's story after story of that happening. Paul even tells us that at one time, 500 people saw him at once. For 40 days, Jesus walks his earth, appearing fully alive to his people as a reminder that I defeated death. And after a while, after 40 days of that, you have to think as a follower of Christ, you're starting to get used to this concept that maybe I don't always see Jesus, but he just pops up at any time. You'll be out fishing. He'll call to you from the shore. You'll be walking, talking with your friend. He'll show up. You'll be together. You'll be praying, and he'll just show up in the room. And so I get to get confidence in that moment that, that Jesus is always close. And I begin to be confident that he cannot be defeated. And it turns out that that confidence, that Jesus is always close, and that nothing, including death, can defeat him ever, happens to be the things that I need for the exact next step. So at the end of this 40 days after Jesus is walking, this time of trial, it's time for change. Jesus gives some instructions to his disciples. If you want to turn there, you can. If not, you'll be very familiar with this. This is in Matthew 28. L listen to what Jesus says during this time. Verse 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye, th go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all, th all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the earth. Amen. Point number three on your outline. Jesus instructs his followers on their mission. If you've been here very much, you recognize those words that I just read from the Bible because we say them at the end of every single service. That is the Great Commission. So as Jesus is walking, he is preparing his disciples for this mission that he is giving them, this thing that they are to do. He tells them, your job is going to be to go out and to make disciples. Make disciples everywhere. Make them here in Jerusalem. Make them across the world. And in making disciples, the Great Commission spells out two things for us that we should do. Number one is evangelism. That's a fancy word for telling the story about Jesus. Like, hey, it seems like you're walking in death. Let me tell you how you can fix that. You're worried about dying? Worried about what's going to happen to you after you die? Is it darkness? Do I go to hell? What happened? Let me tell you how you can fix that. It's because you were alone in death. Jesus loved you enough. He came and he died for you. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, and death couldn't even defeat him. He came back like three days later. That's all evangelism is, is telling the story of Jesus and why people need him. And then once people accept Jesus, the next, the next thing that we do is teach them the teachings of Jesus. We call that discipleship. This is the mission that he gave to his followers. And incidentally, this is the mission that he gives to me. That's what we're doing right now. It was what we did during Sunday school. We're making disciples. 
We're growing. We're teaching the teachings of Jesus. We're learning to live more for him and give more of our lives to him. And this, this was part of his plan. Jesus, God, does nothing that's outside of the plan. His plan was, I'm going to train up. I'm going to equip my people. And now I'm going to give them the mission. Go out and make disciples. Go out and tell people about me. 1 Peter 3, 9, the second half of it says this. Is, he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know what his plan to accomplish that is? His plan is to take his followers and put us to work on mission. To have us sharing the gospel. To have us in our heart to care about others. To have the heart of Jesus. And I love that we get to be part of this plan. What is the most precious thing in this world? It's people. The most precious part of a person is a person's soul. And Jesus did the work to save their soul but you know who he trusts to get the message out to people? You know who he trusts to grow people? He trusts you. That's a big responsibility when you think of it. It's not just like, oh, I probably should share Jesus a little bit more. God says, I'm going to take my people and I'm going to give them the responsibility of making more disciples, of sharing the gospel. And we get to do that. We get to be part of this plan, this plan that saved you and me. We get to express to others. And it turns out that he equips us with everything we need. And then, after giving this mission, after giving this command to his people, he just, he leaves and leaves us the mission. If you've got your Bible still open, Acts chapter 1, read verses 9 and 10 with me. And when he had spoken these things while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in wide apparel. Those two men are going to be angels. Point number four on your outline is Jesus ascends into the presence of God the Father. Here's that change. I can guarantee you if you had to ask those disciples, hey, um, Jesus, could, uh, Jesus could die and then he could come back to a life and he could walk around for 40 days and then you could watch him ascend up into heaven or Jesus could just stay here with you forever. What would they have all picked? Um, leave Jesus here. We don't understand the need for his death, but this was part of the plan. This is the change that brings the next big thing, the necessary change for the plan. And so as Jesus directs them, he gathers them to himself and he takes them where he ascends into heaven. Literally, he just started floating into the sky. They're talking to Jesus and all of a sudden they watch him. And you have to think by now, nothing shocks them. They just kind of watch him go on up. And then the Bible says a cloud received him. What a weird thing to say. Like, like these people are watching him. He's making this public exit. And then all of a sudden he just kind of goes up into a cloud. Like where did he go? Well, the Bible makes it very clear that Jesus now sits in heaven. That's where he went. He went into the presence of God the Father. That's where he went. Now, let me explain to you why that's important. Within the Bible, the Bible teaches something called the Trinity. And what the Trinity means is that God exists as one God in three persons. That's a really hard thing to understand when you really start trying to like graph that out and draw it like three persons, one God, like, like that's too big for us. And I think that's the point of the Trinity, or not the point, but I think that's the point of what we're supposed to understand. See, a God that we could completely comprehend can't be God. Like we say, this is the God who came out of nothing. He created everything we know. He created us. He breathes his life into us. He makes us something special. And do we really expect to understand everything about him? 
expect to understand the Trinity and how it works? I think the point is that we are supposed to be able to believe what God says, even if we can't comprehend it. And these three persons within this Trinity, they have three different roles. They're, they're all equal. They're all of the same essence, the exact same glory, and the same nature. But they're three different persons. So you have the Father who sits on the throne in heaven. Usually when we pray, what do we pray? Our Father who is in heaven. Then you have God the Son. We have Jesus, who is God in human form. This is interesting what Jesus said. He affirmed the Trinity. Jesus in his teaching said, I and the Father are one. We are one together. And then you have God the Holy Spirit. And we're going to get there in a few minutes, so hang on to that. So there's two proofs that we see in the Bible. Actually, there's more than that, but two proofs that I want to bring out that Jesus and the Father are one. Number one, point A, is Jesus is received by a cloud. The Bible literally says the cloud received him. Now, like, it would be easier to be like Jesus floated up and he got lost in the cloud. Jesus went above the clouds. But it says the cloud received him. Now, clouds are not something we usually attribute action to, is it? Like, a cloud does one of three things. A cloud moves, a cloud rains, or a cloud... I forgot what the third one was. They don't do very much. But this cloud received Jesus. So that tells us something very special about this particular cloud. See, within the Bible, God the Father will often manifest visibly as a cloud. Because God told Moses, like, no man can see God the Father and still live. And so God, when he wanted people to see and experience his presence, he would come in the form of a cloud that would just be the supernatural cloud. And I think that's what we're talking about here. In the Old Testament, while the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, they were guided by a cloud. It was God with them. When the Israelites built the temple and God's presence was there, this cloud um, hovered above the temple night and day all of the time so people would know the presence of God. In the New Testament, the exact same word that we see here in Acts is found when Jesus is baptized. And the Bible tells us that when Jesus is baptized, he comes out of the water and a cloud gathers over the river and the cloud speaks. It says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And so when we see this cloud, what we see as a proof here of Jesus being in the presence of the Father, and a visible proof of I and the Father am one, we see that this is called the Shekinah cloud of glory. The cloud receives Jesus unto himself. Secondly, point B, we see that Jesus is seated at God's right hand. You can find this in the last chapter of Mark or in 1 Peter chapter 1. And when you talk about right hand, have you ever heard the saying, this is my right hand man? What does that mean? This is the person who I trust with everything. This is the person who has authority to speak as me. At this time, to sit at the right hand of a king, to sit at the right hand of a throne was a symbol of equality. And so when Jesus ascends into heaven, God gives us this proof that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is not just some man that gave a trick and pretended to be dead and came back. He is God in human form. And so as he ascends, the disciples are staring up in the sky and they watch this. They watch the cloud receive him. And an angel, or actually two angels pop up and they say, hey, I don't know what y'all are still staring for. He's gone. It's time to get to work. If he went, he will come again. But there's just one problem, one problem with the mission here. Think about that great commission. Go teach all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what do we say at the end? Of it? And he is with me always. 
He just left. Like, where are we doing? Jesus just walked out of the world. How can we say Jesus is with us in this mission when we just watch him leave? So how does he fulfill us? This is the big thing. This is the big thing God was preparing his people for. Jesus said this in John 16, 7. He said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. See, this is the plan. This is the plan that Jesus has. This is the plan that God has is that Jesus will come do his work on the cross. Jesus will come back to life of his own power. Jesus will show himself to people for 40 days. And after that 40 days, he will leave, but he will send the Holy Spirit. Number five is Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. So that brings us a question within this Trinity. What, what is a Holy Spirit? What is the Holy Spirit? A point A there is something we need to be clear on. The Holy Spirit is a he. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, because it, the Holy Spirit does not have a formal name like Bob or Jesus or the Father, we tend to think of the Holy Spirit as it, but the Holy Spirit is a He. He is the third part of the Trinity, the third person of that Trinity. And within the Bible, the Bible tells us the jobs of the Holy Spirit when He is with us. The Holy Spirit is listed as a helper, a guide, a comforter, one who convicts. The Holy Spirit cleanses us and sanctifies us. The Holy Spirit teaches us. And most importantly, the Holy Spirit empowers us. So why did Jesus leave? Jesus said, look, you want me to leave. Because when I'm gone, I'm sending the Holy Spirit to you. And that's what you're going to need for your mission. You don't need me here anymore. I have done my part currently on earth. What you need for this next step, even though it's a change and even though it's scary, is you need the Holy Spirit. I have work to do in heaven. By the way, Jesus is in heaven working right now for you and me. In, in the Bible, it tells us that Jesus in heaven is an advocate with us. And what, what does that mean? That means that as we sit here right now, Satan enters into the presence of God and he accuses you of every sin that he can. He comes before God and he goes, look, hey, Brian, Brian's being prideful again. Brian's not being kind. Is this really who you would love? Look at how much sin he has in life. Brian, you should, you should smite Brian and send him to hell. That's what Satan's doing right now with your name in there. You know what Jesus does is he sits at the right hand of God the Father and he says, I paid for that sin. I paid for that sin. That one's paid for. Got that one covered too. It says, Brian is mine. And God, Jesus is needed in heaven for that purpose while the Holy Spirit is here working in us. So the next step is the Holy Spirit works within us. It empowers us to do great things and it changes us. And often in churches like ours, we, we don't really like to talk about the Holy Spirit a lot. It's kind of scary. We've seen it misused. We've seen other people who, uh, how can I put this nicely? Uh, other people who misuse the name of the Holy Spirit. They say the Holy Spirit is filling them and they do things that don't really come from the Holy Spirit. And so for that reason, we're kind of careful of saying the power of the Holy Spirit is here because some people have misused that. But we cannot overlook the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. We need the Spirit within us and we need the Spirit in our church because without the Holy Spirit, we cannot go on our mission. And there's proof of this in Acts chapter 2. It's called the day of Pentecost. So after this, the disciples, they don't really know what to do. They watch Jesus go into heaven. They're sitting around and they're praying. And suddenly, Jesus keeps his word. 
suddenly the Holy Spirit comes into them. And there's this whole scene where like tongues of fire visibly come into them. And they're given all of these strange and wonderful powers that they haven't had before. But, but don't miss this point. Don't miss this point. The Holy Spirit comes into them. And then something changes in the way that they view the world. Something changes when the Holy Spirit comes into people. I'll give you Peter as an example. Peter was Jesus' best friend. He wasn't just some guy who followed a crowd of Jesus. Peter and Jesus were close. Peter loved Jesus maybe more than all the other disciples. And when Jesus was captured, Peter is the only one. He pulls out a sword and he's ready to fight for Jesus. Jesus is like, no, don't do that. But as the night goes on, Peter loses confidence as he watches what they're doing to his best friend. And throughout the night, people ask him, don't you know this Jesus person? No, I don't know him. Are you sure? I think you've seen him with him. Well, you know, I've got a face that looks like a lot of other people's faces. I don't know him. For three times, he sits here and he denies Jesus when Jesus would have needed him the most. That's who Peter was. He chickened out when the chips were down. But suddenly in Acts chapter 2, Peter is sitting around with the disciples. He receives the Holy Spirit and he becomes a whole new person. Immediately after that, Peter begins to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter eventually goes to his death where he is crucified just like Jesus. And he doesn't try to get out of it. He doesn't run away. As a matter of fact, he asked them, he said, hey, would you hang me upside down on that cross? Because I'm not worthy to die like Jesus did. You see, the Holy Spirit changes people and it will change us. Point B on your outline is the Holy Spirit dwells in and changes us. And suddenly it explains that verse that we all know, your body is a temple. It's because when you become a believer, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us just the way that God has dwelt in a temple. And we must learn to be sensitive to the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit, to allow the Spirit to change how we live to guide us because we're on mission. We have a purpose. And the purpose that God has for us now is for us to be sanded down and changed, for sin to be taken out of our life so that we can share His glory with the world. And as we collectively come together, the Spirit should be molding us individually. And as we come together as a church, the Spirit should be molding us together as a church for that mission. Now let me ask you this question. How can the Spirit mold a church collectively? if the Spirit is not molding the people of that church individually. I'm going to ask you that again. How can the Holy Spirit mold a church collectively if we don't allow the Holy Spirit to mold us individually? How do we expect to accomplish our mission if we are not living for God, if we are not walking by the Spirit, if we are not allowing the Spirit to guide us? We need the power of God for this mission, but we have to let it happen within us individually. So real quick, let me say this. What do we need to do to be spirit-led as a church? Well, number one is the members of the church must be saved. You don't get the Holy Spirit because you're special. You don't get the Holy Spirit because you're moral. You get the Holy Spirit because you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you become a follower of Him and then the Spirit dwells within you and it begins to change you. And then we must learn to listen and seek the Spirit. We've got to be willing to start to learn what it feels like to be convicted, to spend time in prayer seeking God's work, to spend time in our Bible asking God to change us. And when all of that happens, when we are saved and we learn to seek the Spirit, we have to be willing to respond. I'm going to ask you a question as we close today. Is this who we are as a church? Are we a church that takes our mission seriously? 
Are we a church that individually we come here hoping that the Spirit molds us, not because this is some habit, but because I want to be better for God? Are we a church who takes individuals and puts them on mission that starts with each one of us? And so this is our response time. And I hope that we can reflect on ourselves and we can ask ourselves, not just did I come here this morning or what do I have to do to get out of here to go eat lunch? I hope we ask ourselves, how am I letting God guide me so that we collectively can go out and accomplish our mission and our work? Today, maybe you may need to be saved. Maybe you realize, hey, I don't have that Holy Spirit dwelling within me because I have been moral, I have been at church, but I have never placed my faith in God. Today's the day. I say it every week. It's gonna be true one day, but I believe it. today is the day for that. Maybe you just need to sit here and realize I've been chasing a lot of things. I've been guided by jobs and money and friends, but it's time for me to start living my life being guided by the Holy Spirit. Whatever it is, don't leave here the same way as you walked in. Let's stand and worship and pray together.